Who precisely is snoring lustily on the train to Blandings with a healthy handkerchief over his face? P.G. Woodhouse, today on the Classic Tales podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. Many, many thanks to all of our listeners and supporting members who help us to keep going. I hope you are all safe and well during this unprecedented outbreak. Hopefully, you are taking advantage of the special selection of titles I have made available for free. I have received many messages that they have helped many parents and children who have found a lot of time on their hands lately. I will be adding more titles to the Home from School free category of the website as the crisis continues, so feel free to check back from time to time. Thanks again to all of our financial contributors. This is a very direct way that your support has been paid forward to help many during this crisis. Thank you so much for helping to keep our heads above water. We'd like to quickly thank Spotify for being a partnering sponsor. If you have the Classic Tales app, you can listen to more of the meditations of Marcus Aurelius in the special features area. Once again, as a response to the COVID-19 coronavirus outbreak, I am giving away for free a selection of my audiobooks geared for grades K through 12 through the website. This is to help those who find themselves with kids at home from school. During this difficult time, please tell your friends, family, or anybody you think could benefit from this service. You can find the link to the free material in the description of today's episode. Now for our personal moment. Well, it looks like the earthquake that we had last week in Utah did some damage to our plumbing. We have dirt in our water lines, and our drains are backing up. So we have to sort that out. Probably have to replace the main line to the house. And I have no idea what that will entail. On the plus side, the stores are getting restocked, and it looks like it's getting better on that end. We are going through our games, as I mentioned last week, and if three out of five of us like them, we keep it. Otherwise, it's donated or just thrown away, depending how badly we need to socially distance ourselves from that horrible game. Anyway, this week we lost apples to apples, but we kept canasta caliente. Uh, Blockus 3D was a big hit, as was Wise and Otherwise. I don't even think you can still buy some of these games, but we're having a good time with usually a Star Wars movie or Pride and Prejudice in the background, and we always have plenty of starbursts. No worries there. So that's our personal moment for the week. I hope you all stay safe and well, and know we're gonna get through this. And now, leave it to Smith. The P is silent. Part four of ten, by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter seven. Baxter suspects. The five o'clock train, having given itself a spasmodic jerk, began to move slowly out of Paddington Station. 
The platform past which it was gliding was crowded with a number of the fauna always to be seen at railway stations at such moments, but in their ranks there was no sign of Mr. Ralston MacTaud, and Smith, as he sat opposite Lord Emsworth in a corner seat of a first-class compartment, felt that genial glow of satisfaction which comes to the man who has successfully taken a chance. Until now, he had been half afraid that MacTaud, having changed his mind, might suddenly appear with bag and baggage, an event which must necessarily have caused confusion and discomfort. His mind was now tranquil. Concerning the future, he declined to worry. It would no doubt contain its little difficulties, but he was prepared to meet them in the right spirit, and his only trouble in the world now was the difficulty he was experiencing in avoiding his lordship's legs, which showed a disposition to pervade the compartment like the tentacles of an octopus. Lord Emsworth ran rather too leg, and his practice of reclining when at ease on the base of his spine was causing him to straddle, like a pollion in Pilgrim's Progress, right across the way. It became manifest that in a journey lasting several hours, his society was likely to prove irksome. For the time being, however, he endured it, and listened with polite attention to his host's remarks on the subject of the Blandings Gardens. Lord Emsworth, in a train moving in the direction of home, was behaving like a horse heading for his stable. He snorted eagerly, and spoke at length and with emotion of roses and herbaceous borders. "'It will be dark, I suppose, by the time we arrive,' he said regretfully. "'But the first thing to-morrow, my dear fellow, I must take you round and show you my gardens.' "'I shall look forward to it keenly,' said Smith. "'They are, I can readily imagine, distinctly Uja cum spiff.' "'I beg your pardon,' said Lord Emsworth with a start. "'Not at all,' said Smith graciously. Um, "'What did you say?' "'asked his lordship after a slight pause. "'I was saying that from all your reports "'you must have a very nifty display of garden produce "'at your rural seat.' "'Oh, yes, oh, most,' said his lordship, looking puzzled. "'He examined Smith across the compartment "'with something of the peering curiosity "'which he would have bestowed upon a new and unclassified shrub. "'Most extraordinary,' he murmured. "'I trust, my dear fellow,' "'You will not think me personal, but, do you know, "'nobody would imagine that you were a poet. "'You don't look like a poet, and, dash it, you don't talk like a poet. "'How should a poet talk?' "'Well,' Lord Emsworth considered the point. "'Well, Miss Peavy, but of course you don't know Miss Peavy. "'Miss Peavy is a poetess, and she waylaid me the other morning "'while I was having a most important conference with McAllister.' "'on the subject of bulbs, and asked me if I didn't think "'that it was the fairy's teardrops that made the dew. "'Did you ever hear such dashed nonsense?' "'Evidently an aggravated case. "'Is Miss Peavy staying at the castle? "'My dear fellow, you couldn't shift her with blasting powder. "'Really, this craze of my sister Constance "'for filling the house with these infernal literary people "'is getting on my nerves. "'I can't stand these poets and what not. "'Never could.' "'We must always remember, however,' said Smith gravely, "'that poets are also God's creatures.' "'Good heavens!' exclaimed his lordship, aghast. "'I had forgotten that you were one. 
What will you think of me, my dear fellow? But of course, as I said a moment ago, you are different. I admit that when Constance told me that she had invited you to the house, I was not cheered. But now that I have had the pleasure of meeting you— The conversation had worked round to the very point to which Smith had been wishing to direct it. He was keenly desirous of finding out why Mr. McTodd had been invited to Blanding's, and, a still more vital matter, of ascertaining whether, on his arrival there as Mr. McTodd's understudy, he was going to meet people who knew the poet by sight. On this latter point, it seemed to him, hung the question of whether he was about to enjoy a delightful visit to a historic country house in the society of Eve Halliday, or leave the train at the next stop and omit to return to it. "'It was extremely kind of Lady Constance,' he hazarded, "'to invite a perfect stranger to Blandings. "'Oh, she's always doing that sort of thing,' said his lordship. "'It didn't matter to her that she'd never seen you in her life. "'She had read your books, you know, and liked them. "'And when she heard that you were coming to England, she wrote to you.' "'I see,' said Smith, relieved. "'Of course, it is all right as it has turned out.' said Lord Emsworth handsomely. As I say, you're different. And how you came to write that... that... Bilge, suggested Smith. The very word I was about to employ, my dear fellow. No, no, I don't mean that. I... Uh, I... Capital stuff, no doubt. Capital stuff. But... I understand. Constance tried to make me read the things, but I couldn't. I fell asleep over them. I hope you rested well. I... Uh, the fact is, I suppose they were beyond me. I couldn't see any sense in the things. If you would care to have another pop at them, said Smith agreeably, I have a complete set in my bag. No, no, my dear fellow, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you a thousand times. I uh, find that reading in the train tries my eyes. Ah, you would prefer that I read them aloud? No, no. A look of alarm came into his lordship's speaking countenance at the suggestion. "'As a matter of fact, I generally take a short nap at the beginning of a railway journey. "'I find it refreshing. "'And, uh, in short, <laughs> refreshing. "'You will excuse me? "'If you think you can get to sleep all right without the aid of my poems, certainly. "'You won't think me rude? "'Not at all, not at all. "'By the way, am I likely to meet any old friends at Blandings? "'Hey? Oh, no. "'There will be nobody but ourselves.' "'except my sister and Miss Peavy, of course. "'You said you had not met Miss Peavy, I think?' "'I have not had the pleasure. "'I am, of course, looking forward to it with the utmost keenness.' "'Lord Emsworth eyed him for a moment, astonished. "'They had concluded the conversation by closing his eyes defensively. "'Smith was left to his reflections, "'which a few minutes later were interrupted by a smart kick on the shin.' as Lord Emsworth, a jumpy sleeper, began to throw his long legs about. Smith moved to the other end of the seat, and taking his bag down from the rack, extracted a slim volume bound in squashy mauve. After gazing at this in an unfriendly manner for a moment, he opened it at random and began to read. His first move on leaving Lord Emsworth at the florist's had been to spend a portion of his slender capital on the works of Ralston MacTodd, in order not to be taken at a disadvantage in the event of questions about them at Blandings. 
but he speedily realized, as he dipped into the poems, that anything in the nature of a prolonged study of them was likely to spoil his little holiday. They were not light summer reading. Hmm, across the pale parabola of joy. A gurgling snort from the other end of the compartment abruptly detached his mind from its struggle with this mystic line. He perceived that his host had slipped even further down onto his spine, and was now lying with open mouth in an attitude suggested of dislocation. And as he looked, there was a whistling sound, and another snore proceeded from the back of his lordship's throat. Smith rose, and took his book of poems out into the corridor, with the purpose of roaming along the train, until he should find an empty compartment in which to read in peace. With the two adjoining compartments he had no luck. One was accompanied by an elderly man with a retriever, while the presence of a baby in the other ruled it out of consideration. The third, however, looked more promising. It was not actually empty, but there was only one occupant, and he was asleep. He was lying back in the far corner with a large silk handkerchief draped over his face and his feet propped up on the seat opposite. His society did not seem likely to act as a bar to the study of Mr. McTodd's masterpieces. Smith sat down and resumed his reading. Across the Pale Parabola of Joy Smith knitted his brow. It was just the sort of line which was likely to have puzzled his patroness, Lady Constance, and he anticipated that she would come to him directly he arrived and ask for an explanation. It would obviously be a poor start for his visit to confess that he had no theory as to its meaning himself. He tried it again. Across the pale parabola of joy. A sound like two or three pigs feeding rather noisily in the middle of a thunderstorm interrupted his meditations. Smith laid his book down and gazed in a pained way across the compartment. There came to him a sense of being unfairly put upon, as towards the end of his troubles it might have come upon Job. This, he felt, was too much. He was being harried. The man in the corner went on snoring. There is always a way. Almost immediately, Smith saw what Napoleon would have done in this crisis. On the seat beside the sleeper was lying a compact little suitcase with hard, sharp edges. Rising softly, Smith edged along the compartment and secured this. Then, having balanced it carefully on the rack above the sleeper's stomach, he returned to his seat to await developments. These were not long in coming. The train, now flying at its best speed through open country, was shaking itself at intervals in a vigorous way as it raced along. A few seconds later, it apparently passed over some points, and shivered briskly down its whole length. The suitcase wobbled insecurely, hesitated, and fell chunkily in the exact middle of its owner's waistcoat. There was a smothered gulp beneath the handkerchief. The sleeper sat up with a jerk. The handkerchief fell off, and there was revealed to Smith's interested gaze the face of the Honourable Freddy Threepwood. Cool, observed Freddy. He removed the bag from his midriff, and began to massage the stricken spot. Then, suddenly perceiving that he was not alone, 
he looked up and saw Smith. Cool, said Freddy, and sat staring wildly. Nobody is more alive than we are to the fact that the dialogue of Freddy Threepwood, recorded above, is not bright. Nevertheless, those were his opening remarks, and the excuse must be that he had passed through a trying time and had just received two shocks, one after the other. From the first of these, the physical impact of the suitcase, he was recovering, but the second had simply paralyzed him. When the mists of sleep having cleared away, he saw, sitting but a few feet away from him, on the train that was carrying him home, the very man with whom he had plotted in the lobby of the Piccadilly Palace Hotel. A cold fear gripped Freddy's very vitals. Freddy's troubles had begun when he just missed the 12.50 train. This disaster had perturbed him greatly, for he could not forget his father's stern injunctions on the subject. But what had really upset him was the fact that he had come within an ace of missing the five o'clock train as well. He had spent that afternoon in a motion picture palace, and the fascination of the film had caused him to lose all sense of time, so that only the slow fade-out on the embrace and the words the end reminded him to look at his watch. A mad rush had got him to Paddington just as the five o'clock express was leaving the station. Exhausted, he had fallen into a troubled sleep, from which he had been aroused by a violent blow in the waistcoat and the nightmare vision of Smith in the seat across the compartment. One cannot wonder, in these circumstances, that Freddy did not immediately soar to the heights of eloquence. The picture which the Honourable Frederick Threepwood had selected for his patronage that afternoon was the well-known super-super-film Fangs of the Past, featuring Bertha Blevidge and Maurice Heddlestone, which, as everybody knows, is all about blackmail. Green-walled by primeval hills, bathed in the golden sunshine of peace and happiness, the village of Honeydean slumbered in the clear morning air. But off the train from the city stepped a stranger, the stranger Maxwell Bannister. He inquired of a passing rustic, the passing rustic Claude Hepworth, the way to the great house where Myrtle Dale, the lady bountiful of the village, well, anyway, it's all about blackmail, and it had affected Freddy profoundly. It still coloured his imagination, and the conclusion to which he came the moment he saw Smith was that the latter had shadowed him and was following him home with the purpose of extracting hush money. While he was still gurgling wordlessly, Smith opened the conversation. A delightful and unexpected pleasure, comrade. I thought you had left the metropolis some hours since. As Freddy sat looking like a cornered dormouse, a voice from the corridor spoke. Ah, there you are, my dear fellow. Lord Emsworth was beaming in the doorway. His slumbers, like those of Freddy, had not lasted long. He had been aroused only a few minutes after Smith's departure by the arrival of the retriever from the next compartment, which, bored by the society of its owner, had strolled off on a tour of investigation, and finding next door an old acquaintance in the person of his lordship, had jumped on the seat and licked his face with such hearty good will that further sleep was out of the question. Being awake... Lord Emsworth, as always when he was awake, had begun to potter. When he saw Freddy, his amiability suffered a shock. Frederick! 
I thought I told you to be sure to return on the 12.50 train. Missed it, Governor, mumbled Freddy thickly. Not my fault. <laughs> His father seemed about to pursue the subject, but the fact that a stranger, and one who was his guest, was present, apparently decided him to avoid anything in the shape of family wrangles. He peered from Freddy to Smith and back again. "'Do you two know each other?' he said. "'Not yet,' said Smith. "'We only met a moment ago.' "'My son, Frederick,' said Lord Emsworth, rather in the voice with which he would have called attention to the presence of a slug among his flowers. "'Frederick, this is Mr. McTodd, the poet, who is coming to stay at Blandings.' Freddy started, and his mouth opened, but meeting Smith's friendly gaze, he closed the orifice again without speaking. He licked his lips in an overwrought way. "'You'll find me next door if you want me,' said Lord Emsworth to Smith. "'Just discovered that George Willard, very old friend of mine, is in there. Never saw him get on the train. His dog came into my compartment and licked my face. One of my neighbours, a remarkable rose-grower. As you are so interested in flowers, I will take you over to his place some time. Why don't you join us now?' "'I would prefer, if you do not mind,' said Smith, "'to remain here for the moment, "'and foster what I feel sure "'is about to develop into a great and lasting friendship. "'I am convinced that your son and I "'will have much to talk about together. "'Very well, my dear fellow. "'We will meet at dinner in the restaurant car.' "'Lord Emsworth parted off, "'and Smith rose and closed the door.' He returned to his seat to find Freddy regarding him with a tortured expression in his rather prominent eyes. Freddy's brain had had more exercise in the last few minutes than in years of his normal life, and he was feeling the strain. "'I say, what?' he observed feebly. "'If there is anything,' said Smith kindly, "'that I can do to clear up any little difficulty that is perplexing you, call on me.' "'What is biting you?' Freddy swallowed convulsively. "'I say, he said your name was McTodd.' "'Precisely. "'But you said it was Smith.' "'It is.' Well, "'Then why did Father call you McTodd?' "'He thinks I am. "'It is a harmless error, "'and I see no reason why it should be discouraged.' "'But why does he think you're McTodd?' "'It is a long story, "'which you may find tedious, "'but if you really wish to hear it.' Nothing could have exceeded the raptness of Freddy's attention as he listened to the tale of the encounter with Lord Emsworth at the Senior Conservative Club. "'Do you mean to say,' he demanded at its conclusion, "'that you're coming to Blandings, pretending to be this poet-blighter?' "'That is the scheme. "'But why?' "'I have my reasons, comrade. "'What is the name? Threepwood?' "'I thank you. "'You will pardon me, comrade Threepwood.' "'if I do not go into them. "'And now,' said Smith, "'to resume our very interesting chat, "'which was unfortunately cut short this morning, "'why do you want me to steal your aunt's necklace?' "'Freddy jumped. "'For the moment, so tensely had the fact of his companion's audacity "'chained his interest, "'he had actually forgotten about the necklace. "'Great Scott!' he exclaimed. "'Why, of course!' "'You still have not made it quite clear.' It fits splendidly. The necklace, 
I mean to say, the great difficulty would have been to find a way of getting you into the house. And here you are, coming there as this poet bird, topping. If, said Smith, regarding him patiently through his eyeglass, I do not seem to be immediately infected by your joyous enthusiasm, put it down to the fact that I haven't the remotest idea what you're talking about. Could you give me a pointer or two? What, for instance, assuming that I agreed to steal your aunt's necklace, would you expect me to do with it when and if stolen? Why, hand it over to me, I see. And what would you do with it? Hand it over to my uncle. And whom would he hand it over to? Look here, said Freddy. I might as well start at the beginning. An excellent idea. The speed at which the train was now proceeding had begun to render conversation in anything but stentorian tones somewhat difficult. Freddy accordingly bent forward till his mouth almost touched Smith's ear. You see, it's like this. My uncle, old Joe Keeble, Keeble, said Smith. Why, he murmured meditatively, is that name familiar? Don't interrupt, old lad, pleaded Freddy. I stand corrected. Uncle Joe has a stepdaughter, Phyllis her name is, and some time ago she popped off and married a cove called Jackson. Smith did not interrupt the narrative again, but as it proceeded his look of interest deepened, and at the conclusion he patted his companion encouragingly on the shoulder. The proceeds, then, of this jewel robbery, if it comes off, he said, will go to establish the Jackson home on a firm footing. Am I right in thinking that? Absolutely. There is no danger, you will pardon the suggestion, of you clinging like glue to the swag and using it to maintain yourself in the position to which you are accustomed? Absolutely not. Uncle Joe is giving me, uh, giving me a bit for myself. Just a small bit, you understand. This is the scheme. You sneak the necklace and hand it over to me. I push the necklace over to Uncle Joe, who hides it somewhere for the moment. There is the dickens of a fuss, and Uncle Joe comes out strong by telling Aunt Constance that he'll buy her another necklace just as good. Then he takes the stones out of the necklace, has them reset, and gives them to Aunt Constance. Looks like a new necklace, if you know what I mean. Then he draws a cheque for twenty thousand quid, which Aunt Constance naturally thinks is for the new necklace, and he shoves the money somewhere as a little private account. He gives Phyllis her money, and everybody's happy. Aunt Constance has got her necklace, Phyllis has got her money, and all that's happened is that Aunt Constance's and Uncle Joe's combined bank balance has had a bit of a hole knocked in it. See? I see. It is a little difficult to follow all the necklaces. I seemed to count about seventeen of them while you were talking, but I suppose I was wrong. Yes, I see, Comrade Threepwood, and I may say at once that you can rely on my cooperation. You'll do it? I will. Of course, said Freddy awkwardly. I'll see to it that you get a bit all right. I mean— Smith waved his hand deprecatingly. My dear Comrade Threepwood— let us not become sordid on this glad occasion. As far as I am concerned, there will be no charge. What? But look here. Any assistance I can give will be offered in a purely amateur spirit. I would have mentioned before, only I was reluctant to interrupt you, that Comrade Jackson is my boyhood chum, and that Phyllis, his wife, 
injects into my life the few beams of sunshine that illumine its dreary round. I have long desired to do something to ameliorate their lot, and now that the chance has come, I am delighted. It is true that I am not a man of affluence. My bank manager, I am told, winces in a rather painful manner whenever my name is mentioned. But I am not so reduced that I must charge a fee for performing, on behalf of a pal, a simple act of courtesy like pinching a twenty-thousand-pound necklace. Good Lord! Fancy that! Fancy what, Conrad Threepwood? Fancy your knowing Phyllis and her husband! It is odd, no doubt, but true. Many a whack at the cold beef have I had on Sunday evenings under their roof, and I am much obliged to you for putting in my way this opportunity of repaying their hospitality. Thank you. Oh, that's all right, said Freddy, somewhat bewildered by this eloquence. Even if the little enterprise meets with disaster, the reflection that I did my best for the young couple will be a great consolation to me, and I am serving my bit of time in Wormwood Scrubs. It will cheer me up. The jailers will cluster outside the door to listen to me singing in my cell. My pet rat, as he creeps out to share the crumbs of my breakfast, will wonder why I whistle as I pick the morning's oakum. I shall join the hymns on Sundays in a way that will electrify the chaplain. That is to say, if anything goes wrong, and I am what I believe is technically termed copped, I say if, said Smith, gazing solemnly at his companion, but I do not intend to be copped. I have never gone in largely for crime hitherto, but something tells me I shall be rather good at it. I look forward confidently to making a nice, clean job of the thing. And now, Comrade Threepwood, I must ask you to excuse me while I get the half-Nelson on this rather poisonous poetry of good old MacTodd's. From the cursory glance I have taken at it, the stuff doesn't seem to mean anything. I think the boy's non-compass. You don't happen to understand the expression, across the pale parabola of joy, do you? I feared as much. Well, pip-pip for the present, Comrade Threepwood. I shall now ask you to retire into your corner and amuse yourself for a while as you best can. I must concentrate, concentrate. And Smith, having put his feet up on the opposite seat and reopened the mauve volume, began to read. Freddy, his mind still in a whirl, looked out of the window at the passing scenery in a mood which was a nice blend of elation and apprehension. Although the hands of the station clock pointed to several minutes past nine, it was still apparently early evening when the train drew up at the platform of market landings and discharged its distinguished passengers. The sun, taken in as usual by the never-failing practical joke of the Daylight Saving Act, had only just set, and a golden afterglow lingered on the fields as the car which had met the train purred over the two miles of country road that separated the little town from the castle. As they passed in between the great stone gate-posts and shot up the winding drive, the soft murmur of the engines seemed to deepen rather than break the soothing stillness. The air was fragrant with indescribable English scents. Somewhere in the distance sheep-bells tinkled. Rabbits, waggling white tails, bolted across the path, and once a herd of agitated deer made a brief appearance among the trees. The only thing that disturbed the magic hush 
was the fluting voice of Lord Emsworth, on whom the spectacle of his beloved property had acted as an immediate stimulant. Unlike his son Freddy, who sat silent in his corner, wrestling with his hopes and fears, Lord Emsworth had plunged into a perfect Niagara of speech the moment the car entered the park. In a high tenor voice, and with wide, excited gestures, he pointed out to Smith oaks with a history, and rhododendrons with a past. His conversation as they drew near the castle, and came in sight of the flower-beds, taking on an almost lyrical note, and becoming a sort of anthem of gladness, through which, like some theme in the minor, ran a series of opprobrious observations on the subject of Angus McAllister. Beach, the butler, solicitously scooping them out of the car at the front door, announced that her ladyship and Miss Peavy were taking their after-dinner coffee in the arbour by the bowling green, and presently Smith, conducted by his lordship, found himself shaking hands with a strikingly handsome woman, in whom, though her manner was friendliness itself, he could detect a marked suggestion of the formidable. Aesthetically, he admired Lady Constance's appearance, but he could not conceal from himself that, in the peculiar circumstances, he would have preferred something rather more fragile and drooping. Lady Constance conveyed the impression that anybody who had the choice between stealing anything from her and stirring up a nest of hornets with a short walking stick would do well to choose the hornets. "'How do you do, Mr. McTodd?' said Lady Constance, with great amiability. "'I am so glad you were able to come after all.' Smith wondered what she meant by after all. But there were so many things about his present situation calculated to tax the mind— that he had no desire to probe slight verbal ambiguities. He shook her hand, and replied that it was very kind of her to say so. "'We are quite a small party at present,' continued Lady Constance. "'But we are expecting a number of people quite soon. For the moment, Eileen and you are our only guests. Oh, I am sorry, I should have—Miss Peavy, Mr. McTodd.' The slim and willowy female, who, during the brief conversation, had been waiting in an attitude of suspended animation, gazing at Smith with large, wistful eyes, stepped forward. She clasped Smith's hand in hers, held it, and in a low, soft voice, like thick cream made audible, uttered one reverent word. Maître. I beg your pardon, said Smith. A young man capable of bearing himself with calm and dignity in most circumstances, however trying, he found his poise wobbling under the impact of Miss Eileen Peavy. Miss Peavy often had this effect on the less soulful type of man, especially in the mornings, when such men are not at their strongest and best. When she came into the breakfast-room of a country house, brave men who had been up a bit late the night before— quailed and tried to hide behind newspapers. She was the sort of woman who tells a man who is propping his eyes open with his fingers and endeavouring to correct a headache with strong tea that she was up at six watching the dew fade off the grass, and didn't he think that those wisps of morning mist were the elves' bridal veils? She had large, fine, melancholy eyes, and was apt to droop dreamily. Master! said Miss Peavy, obligingly translating. 
there did not seem to be any immediate comeback to a remark like this, so Smith contented himself with beaming genially at her through his monocle, and Miss Peavy came to bat again. How wonderful that you were able to come, after all. Again, this after all motif creeping into the theme. You know Miss Peavy's work, of course, said Lady Constance, smiling pleasantly on her two celebrities. Who does not? said Smith courteously. Oh, do you? said Miss Peavy, gratification causing her slender body to perform a sort of ladylike shimmy down its whole length. I scarcely hoped that you would know my name. My Canadian sales have not been large. Quite large enough, said Smith. I mean, of course, he added with a paternal smile, that while your delicate art may not have a universal appeal in a young country, it is intensely appreciated by a small and select body of the intelligentsia. And if that was not the stuff to give them, he reflected with not a little complacency, he was dashed. Your own wonderful poems, replied Miss Peavy, are, of course, known the whole world over. Oh, Mr. McTodd, you can hardly appreciate how I feel meeting you. It is like the realization of some golden dream of childhood. It is like— Here the Honourable Freddy Threepwood remarked suddenly that he was going to pop into the house for a whisky and soda, as he had not previously spoken. His observation had something of the effect of a voice from the tomb. The daylight was ebbing fast now, and in the shadows he had contrived to pass out of sight as well as out of mind. Miss Peavy started like an abruptly awakened somnambulist, and Smith was at last able to release his hand, which he had begun to look on as gone beyond his control forever. Until this fortunate interruption, there had seemed no reason why Miss Peavy should not have continued to hold it till bedtime. Freddy's departure had the effect of breaking a spell. Lord Emsworth, who had been standing perfectly still with vacant eyes, like a dog listening to a noise a long way off, came to life with a jerk. "'I'm going to have a look at my flowers,' he announced. "'Don't be silly, Clarence,' said his sister. "'It's much too dark to see flowers.' "'I could smell them,' reported his lordship argumentatively. It seemed as if the party must break up for already his lordship had begun to potter off, when a newcomer arrived to solidify it again. "'Ah, Baxter, my dear fellow,' said Lord Emsworth. "'Here we are, you see.' "'Mr. Baxter,' said Lady Constance, "'I want you to meet Mr. McTodd.' "'Mr. McTodd,' said the new arrival, on a note of surprise. "'Yes, he found himself able to come after all.' "'Ah,' said the efficient Baxter.' It occurred to Smith as a passing thought, to which he gave no more than a momentary attention, that this spectacled and capable-looking man was gazing at him, as they shook hands, with a curious intensity. But possibly, he reflected, this was merely a species of optical illusion due to the other's spectacles. Baxter, staring through his spectacles, often gave people the impression of possessing an eye that could pierce six inches of Harveyized steel, and stick out on the other side. Having registered in his consciousness the fact that he had been stared at keenly by this stranger, Smith thought no more of the matter. In thus lightly dismissing the Baxterian stare, 
Smith had acted injudiciously. He should have examined it more closely, and made an effort to analyze it, for it was by no means without its message. It was a stare of suspicion. Vague suspicion as yet, but nevertheless, suspicion. Rupert Baxter was one of those men whose chief characteristic is a disposition to suspect their fellows. He did not suspect them of this or that definite crime. He simply suspected them. He had not yet definitely accused Smith in his mind of any specific tort or malfeasance. He merely had a nebulous feeling that he would bear watching. Miss Peavy now fluttered again into the centre of things. On the arrival of Baxter, she had withdrawn for a moment into the background, but she was not the woman to stay there long. She came forward, holding out a small oblong book, which, with a languishing firmness, she pressed into Smith's hands. "'Could I persuade you, Mr. McTodd?' said Miss Peavy, pleadingly, "'to write some little thought in my autograph book and sign it? I have a fountain pen.' Light flooded the arbour. The efficient Baxter, who knew where everything was, had found and pressed the switch. He did this not so much to oblige Miss Peavy as to enable him to obtain a clearer view of the visitor. With each minute that passed, the efficient Baxter was finding himself more and more doubtful in his mind about this visitor. There, said Miss Peavy, welcoming the illumination. Smith tapped his chin thoughtfully with a fountain pen. He felt that he should have foreseen this emergency earlier. If ever there was a woman who was bound to have an autograph book, that woman was Miss Peavy. Just some little thought. Smith hesitated no longer. In a firm hand he wrote the words, Across the pale parabola of joy, added an unfaltering Ralston McTodd, and handed the book back. "'How strange,' sighed Miss Peavy. "'May I look?' said Baxter, moving quickly to her side. "'How strange,' repeated Miss Peavy. "'To think that you should have chosen that line. "'There are several of your more mystic passages that I meant to ask you to explain, "'but particularly across the pale parabola of joy.' "'You find it difficult to understand?' "'A little, I confess.' "'Well, well,' said Smith indulgently. "'Perhaps I did put a bit of topspin on that one. "'I beg your pardon? "'I say perhaps it is a little obscure. "'We must have a long chat about it later on.' "'Why not now?' demanded the efficient Baxter, "'flashing his spectacles. "'I am rather tired,' said Smith, with gentle reproach. "'After my journey, fatigued, we artists—' "'Of course,' said Miss Peavy, with an indignant glance at the secretary. "'Mr. Baxter does not understand the sensitive poetic temperament.' "'A bit unspiritual, eh?' said Smith tolerantly. "'A trifle earthy? So I thought, so I thought. "'One of these strong, hard men of affairs, I shouldn't wonder. "'Shall we go and find Lord Emsworth, Mr. McTorn?' said Miss Peavy. "'dismissing the fermenting Baxter with a scornful look. "'He wandered off just now. "'I suppose he is among his flowers. "'Flowers are very beautiful by night.' "'Indeed, yes,' said Smith. "'And also by day. 
when I am surrounded by flowers, a sort of divine peace floods over me, and the rough, harsh world seems far away. I feel soothed, tranquil. I sometimes think, Miss Peavy, that flowers must be the souls of little children who have died in their innocence. What a beautiful thought, Mr. McTodd! exclaimed Miss Peavy rapturously. Yes, agreed Smith. Don't pinch it. It's copyright. The darkness swallowed them up. Lady Constance turned to the efficient Baxter, who was brooding with furrowed brow. Charming, is he not? I beg your pardon. I said I thought Mr. McTodd was charming. Oh, quite. Completely unspoiled. Oh, decidedly. I am so glad that he was able to come after all. That telegram he sent this afternoon, cancelling his visit, seemed so curt and final. So I thought it. Almost as if he had taken offence at something, and decided to have nothing to do with us. Quite. Lady Constance shivered delicately. A cool breeze had sprung up. She drew her wrap more closely about her shapely shoulders, and began to walk to the house. Baxter did not accompany her. The moment she had gone, he switched off the light and sat down, chin in hand. That massive brain was working hard. This is B. J. Harrison. I hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of Leave It to Smith. The P is silent. Part four of ten by P. G. Woodhouse. If you have enjoyed this book, you may also enjoy The Secret Adversary by Agatha Christie, and The Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar by Maurice Leblanc. These and a handful of other titles are available for free at ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com during the course. Of the coronavirus outbreak, please tell your friends they are more than welcome to them. Anything we can do to help. Thank you for joining me today, and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week, and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. <music>